Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO Podcast. If you're a chief executive or if you think like one and you want to create exponentially greater impact, then this show is for you. My name is Richard Medcalf, founder of Xquadrant. I coach some of the most successful and impressive CEOs and executive teams on the planet and help them achieve even more extraordinary results. Because no matter how successful you've been in the past, there's always a whole new level of impact available to you. So, if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. Data is an important asset for every business. And today I'm speaking with Matthew Scullion, who's built a whole billion dollar business around processing raw data and turning it into useful business assets that any leader can harness. In today's discussion, we get first of all into the data industry and understanding the importance and the shift that's happening in businesses around the world. And secondly, we dive into his story of how he created a small services-based business and then pivoted that into a hyper-growth tech company that ended up creating over a billion dollars of value. He talks about his playbook to do that. We look at the importance of values, which many companies have, but few truly operationalize in the way that Matthew has. This is a great conversation with one of Britain's leading entrepreneurs. I hope you enjoy this insightful discussion with Matthew Scullion. Hi, Matthew, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having us, Richard. It's great to be here. Hey, this is going to be a fun one. Uh, you've done something incredible, right? You have founded, founded um, Matillion in 2011 uh, as a data transformation firm. I guess we'll get into exactly what that means. Uh, you've grown it to unicorn status, number 251 in the Financial Times, 1,000 list of Europe's fastest growing companies. I think along the way, you've picked up at Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year Award. So you're doing a lot of things right, obviously, uh, in this business. And it's going to be great just to dive in and dig in a little bit to understand your secrets of scaling. So um, why don't we just go straight in? First of all, tell me, so tell me about Matillion. Uh, first of all, well, you're the founder. So what was the vision? Like, why did you found this, this business? What, was, what did you see as the opportunity? Uh, and how's that evolved over the years? Yeah, um, great question, Richard, and thanks for getting us started. So, uh, you know, in some ways, the vision I and we had on day one is unaltered uh, from what it is today, uh, working at the intersection of two technology megatrends, really, cloud and data. And that was always what Matillion was born to do, and it's what we still do today. Uh, but but the products we sell and the value we add to the world are actually quite different. And the reason for that is we had a pretty major pivot around uh, 2015 when, when we went from being a company that started off by selling finished sort of turnkey solutions to being a company that sold uh, infrastructure software technology. So the story real quick. Um, in my previous career, I've, I've worked in software since I was about um, 17, actually, Richard, which is a bit yeah. embarrassing, isn't it? But um, uh, I, I did a startup in my late teens. We built that up to 20, 30 people, sold it in my early 20s. I then got a proper job for a bit. And <laughs> towards the end of, of that run, 
Um, I was managing a software development team, um, uh, a team that was doing data analytics, and a team that was just starting to play with early cloud technology. Okay. And kind of noticed that data and analytics was this uh, persistent, um, uh, visceral need that businesses wanted. You, you, there was always demand for that sort of stuff. And then separately, it was clear to me, at least, and, and my co-founders, that cloud was going to change the world. So we're like, hey, let's set up a company that does data analytics in the cloud. And then, as I mentioned, we spent a couple of years um, uh, uh, delivering finished analytics solutions for customers. So the idea was that if you wanted enterprise quality business intelligence and dashboards, mm. but you couldn't do it yourselves, we would deliver that end-to-end for you and look after it. As a project, way. as a project. Uh, yeah, yeah. They'd right. pay a set fee and a monthly subscription. Right. We'd, yeah. we'd get it all working and we'd look after it for them, like okay. an extension of their team, really. So what I'm hearing is that that was the first part of the business, but all yeah. this growth came after the, this, the pivot that you were about to yeah, tell me about. Yeah, so you kind enough to mention some of those uh, greatest hits points from Matillion's story. I don't know how many of those same greatest hits we'd have got if we'd have stayed on that trajectory. It was a nice little business, but as a byproduct of it, and here was the key thing, um, to make BI solution work, you normally need a data warehouse. And so for each customer that we got in the early days, we built a data warehouse in the cloud. And that was a quite new thing to do at that point. And to put no too fine a point on it, Richard, we found it harder than we thought it should be to do. The, the technology and tooling available to help you build a data warehouse in the cloud wasn't built for the cloud, and that was slowing us down. So in 2014, we thought, well, gosh, we will build our own tool, our own software, which is designed for building data warehouses in the cloud. And a year later, we had an early version of it. It worked so well that we thought, oh, gosh, maybe some other people in the world have got the same problem and might like to buy this product that we've created for ourselves, but we're now happy to share in return for a fee. And um, there's, Well, there's many companies who end up building software for them, well, product, well, tooling for themselves yeah. that they end up realizing is actually their new business. It's happened. That's right. Like Slack is a famous example of that, right? Yes. And, and, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we spent 2015 kind of changing ourselves from a, you know, SaaS rapid services company through to being an ISV. And in October 2015, uh, we launched uh, um, in a very understated way, Richard, that makes you think of fireworks and, uh, uh, you know, the Super Bowl halftime commercial. It wasn't like that. But we we launched Matillion ETL. But then it was Matillion ETL for Amazon Redshift. Now there's a whole platform of products. Um, and, and we went from there. And uh, if memory serves, we were about... I'm going to go 15 people at that point. Um, okay. and, and we're now a chunk more than that. So you, I think you said you're about 600 people or so now. Yeah, so a little north of 600 people, uh, 310 million in venture capital raised today, $1.5 billion enterprise valuation. And that growth has really come from becoming an ISV and finding product market fit with uh, Matillion ETL. And realize, uh, I guess realizing, Richard, what our, our place in the world was, understanding our product market fit and the big problem that we're uh, now more than mobilized to try and solve for the world. Yeah. So I think you were giving me a great description earlier on about uh, really what you're trying to do. do you want to, I think you were saying that every business needs data, but the data's, it's not the data you get from systems is not really in a processable form in an, uh, the analytics can really use right so that's what i understand your business to be this this pre-processing is that right to allow companies to actually make use of it yeah that is precisely right so 
you know, the backdrop is uh, every aspect of how we work, live and play today is being changed really quickly. And we hope for the better using data. And, and that's been fueled by the cloud, right? It, it's so much easier, faster, cheaper, more scalable to use data than people want to. And it's changing every aspect of how we work, live and play. But the bit of the story that's um, less often spoke about, even though it's a huge problem, is that data uh, is always valuable, but isn't useful in its raw state for driving these um, analytics, AI, machine learning and data science projects and use cases. You know, in this way, it's quite like um, uh, iron and steel, right? Iron ore is valuable but it isn't useful in its raw state. We have to refine it into steel. And once we've done that, we can build bridges and ships and buildings with it. Data is the same. It exists in systems, but you've got to refine it. So that's join it together, um, uh, sort out the quality, embellish it with trusted metrics, all that good stuff before you can use it to drive right. your machine learning algorithm or your analytics dashboard. Yeah. That work, that making the data useful is 70% of the work in uh, right. in doing uh, any sort of data use case. And so what you find in businesses that they're super constrained in their ability to innovate with data just because they can't make it useful fast enough. Got it. That, that data productivity is what our technology is designed to solve. Uh, it makes individuals, teams, and companies more productive in making data useful and that ties into our mission as a business which is to make the world's data useful perfect well let's i'm going to take that as a, as a bit of a pivot actually in this conversation because um so you've got your mission as the in a way when you said it it reminded me a bit of google's one right because they wanted they wanted to organize they might have changed now but they wanted to organize the world's data and everything and yeah i'm thinking you know this is i know you're a manchester UK-based company. Uh, you've had all this success. You've opened up a major operation in, in the US, especially around your go-to-market uh, and your sales operations. And so I'm curious, like, what's that like to be a leading-edge, high-growth tech company, I guess, battling it out and probably also partnering with Silicon Valley in, in, in different ways, and yet with a, a I guess, originally a British culture or different assets available to you or not available to you in the home market. I mean, what's that been like? Is that a non-issue or has it created a strength or, or, or challenges for you? I think like many things, Richard, it, it, there's, there's pros and cons, but certainly overall, we would say uh, it's been very net positive for us being a British business uh, using a Silicon Valley playbook. Um, uh, but it does also, as with all things, have challenges that you have to overcome. Um, so I'd say the first one of those is realizing, right? And uh, sometimes people ask me, you know, what would you change on day one in terms of how mm. you're an entrepreneur? And one of the things I often like to say and answer that question is, uh, on day one, I'd assume I was building a consequential business and act accordingly. Right. Um, mm. Whereas here in the UK, oftentimes, not exclusively, of course, but oftentimes people don't assume that. They assume they're building a modest business and act accordingly. Um, and for us uh, and me, we went on that journey. And, and a big accelerant into that was bringing on board Silicon Valley capital and, and venture capital investment 
because those investors turn up and say, well, obviously you're building a $100 million revenue business, even though you're today only on one. So you better get on with it, Matthew, right? And it kind of brings that, that energy to it. If I was starting up a business again today, I'd start with that on the first day. And so that, that's a big difference in, from what I see, at least. In and what would that have changed if you had that mindset? Well, everything cascades from that, really. So concepts like times the highest, uh, times the biggest enemy of the high growth business, right? It gives right. you a total urgency around time, mm-hmm. um, around your team, right? So we use this phrase quite a lot in our business, right person, right seat, right time. And what that talks about is, you know, may- maybe there's someone running a particular part of the business they might be the absolute best person in the world to take your particular business from, say, 5 million of recurring revenue to 20 million of recurring revenue. But they might not have the playbook to take you from 20 to 50 or 50 to 100. Those might be different people over time. You know, in a, in a more modest growth business with modest ambitions, you don't think about that. And the byproduct is you might leave the wrong people in seat for too long or um, it, it, it affects your uh um attitude to raising capital right if you think you're going to take a um a big chunk mm. of a big market then you you have to have the right capital on board you tell that right. story you deliver the metrics that support you raising the capital mm. you raise it and then it you know it doesn't become a self-fulfilling prophecy because there's lots of work involved but it puts you on the right trajectory so Ooh. i think that that is a, a a big thing you know just that cognition that you're trying to do something big so you act accordingly so what was the thing that within those that you would perhaps have which which, which would have made the biggest difference so you know was it the, the, the rush was it the like level of investment that you raised was it the team that you put in place or the length of time you left in there so it was a one particular aspect where you know what I didn't think big enough when I was acting in that area in the early days it's hard for me to answer that with a, I think this one is the biggest because, I mean, first of all, we got to, I don't know, maybe 5 million of recurring. So we were two years into having launched the product um, right. before we raised money in Silicon Valley. So, and, and we started raising it before we raised it. And so, um, right. so it wasn't that long in the history of the business before we started right. to think like that. Um, but I'd say it's the urgency, and I don't mean that's work. Like uh, all founder entrepreneurs, CEOs, or, or other senior members of the team work hard, right? That's kind of goes with the territory. Uh, it, but it's the urgency and the focus that that brings. Um, and and um, you pretty quickly figure out, I think, that there's a there's a set of chess moves in, in building a business, right? First of all, you identify a market with a problem that's big enough to support growing your company. And then you, uh, you dial in on finding some product market fit, um, uh, you know, solving that problem in a way uh, that customers are prepared to pay to have it solved. And then your next job is to get on with scaling go-to-market. And something we talk less about is go-to-market fit. Um, but figuring mm. out, you know, what's the, uh, the shape of the team, the processes, what does the production line look like for manufacturing demand, closed business expansion and delighting in retaining customers that allows me to scale revenue. And scaling revenue is really important because, 
the amount that you spend on R&D, your product, keeping enhancing your product market fit, it's just a ratio of your revenue, right? You can't, can't spend 300% of your revenue on R&D. So if you want to spend more on R&D, you've got to grow the revenue. So that kind of focus and urgency drops out of, hey, we've got a big goal and we need to get there quickly, otherwise we're going to miss it. So yeah. how, how can we really brutally prioritize? And, mm. you know, it just cascades over the rest of the business, I think. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I love that um, go-to-market fit as well as the product market fit, which you're right, everyone talks about the former, but actually you got to bring the money in and, uh, yeah. and every business is different, right, when it comes to the, the, the go-to-market. And, and so, what, yeah. what most of us do on that, by the way, is, is that we start off selling it ourselves as yeah. founding team members. And, and then maybe we hire, you know, half a dozen salespeople or go-to-market professionals. And in some sort of Darwinian selection process, a few of those guys end up being rock stars and do a great job. But that's very different from setting up an organization that can predictably hire 10 new reps a month or quarter and ensure that eight of those are going to make yeah. it and retire oh. at 80% of their quota. I, and that's the bit where it becomes a machine rather than just a reflection of the product market fit. Yeah, absolutely. A number of founders I've even worked with, you know, and they often are like, oh, I'm still the best sales person in my company. I, you know, I yeah. still wearing that hat too much. I'm being dragged in too much onto the commercial side. And of course, that's a recipe for overload yeah. uh, for being a bottleneck. Yeah, and yeah else. that's it that's it you know the ceo of, I, I mean i was going to say the ceo of microsoft but probably isn't out prospecting for new customers he probably is phoning some big customers and and uh, you know yeah. maybe helping close a big deal or helping keeping them happy and that's fine right that's part yeah. of yeah. a senior executive's job but um yeah you know it, it, it once you need to be adding five ten twenty million dollars of new ARR per calendar quarter yeah you ain't doing that on your own unless you sell something very expensive <laughs> so one of the things that I believe that Matilian is uh, has been a, a foundation for your success is the culture I, you know I've, I've picked this up and uh, I just love you to talk a bit about that because everyone talks about their culture and it's important and everything else um so tell me about like why do you think it's really more than just you know the the, the poster in the conference room? Uh, how's that and, and how's that served to grow the business? Yeah, so it definitely isn't the poster in the conference room. By the way, my joke on that is it's the uh, the poster on the back of the lavatory door. So yours was <laughs> yours was nicer than mine. But um, yeah. the um, but yeah, um, uh, at Matillion, um, you know, I think uh, all of our early progress has really been built on the most important asset of the company, which is the team. Um, uh, uh, one of my few original business lines, Richard, is there's only two types of problems in business. There's people problems and there's problems that, that you haven't yet figured out are actually people problems. So <laughs> it's all about people and it's all about the team. The team, uh, you know, uh, uh, dials in on uh, what the problem is and ideates the products to fix it. The team builds the software, ships in, looks after it, finds and delights the customers and runs the business to support that R&D and go-to-market effort. It's all about people. Yeah. And so if the team's the most important thing, then in, in our worldview, the environment that they live and work in is also extremely important. And for that reason, Matillion, I'm pleased to say, has a uh, what we think is a strong and healthy culture, but it's underpinned by six values that all Matillioners hold precious. And they're the only 
non-negotiable thing about working at Matillion. You know, in, in all other ways, we mm. celebrate diversity, but in terms of our ability to live the six values, that's non-negotiable. And I, mm. I mentioned uh, uh, um, earlier that, um, you know, there was uh, things at the beginning of the business that you wish you did differently, but there's also, of course, things that you think, oh, yeah, that was a good move. Um, and the first thing I did on the first morning of Matillion, uh, I think it was January 24th, 2011, is I wrote down the values. And we've kind of polished them up a bit since, but I did write them down. And and it just set the ship off on the right course, right? Mm. It held me to account on them. So um, just and, just let me know the, what are the values. Just just let let's so we just so we're talking specifics here. What are they? So it's confidence without arrogance. You know, we're 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 trying to do something big and uh-huh. we're excited about it, but we we stay humble and stay vulnerable as we do that. Bias for action, uh, which means we get things done, but in a considered way. Customer obsessed, uh, which means we try to deeply empathize and serve the needs of our customers. At Matillion, we innovate and demand quality, recognizing that no person, process, or product is ever finished. And by the way, person is probably the most important one of those. We do business with integrity, treat other people as we uh, would like to be treated ourselves. And we don't do things that we wouldn't like seeing written in the newspaper or discussed without us being there at the water cooler. And then finally at Matillion, we care. Uh, We care about Matillioners, their families and the society in which we operate. Mm. And so those are the six values that all Matillioners have to live inside the guardrails on, Mm. but more importantly, are the, the lantern that guides them in the dark when they don't know what to do. Hi, this is Richard. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to tell you about my book, Making Time for Strategy, which is being released in January 2023. It deals with perhaps the number one challenge I've come across in my coaching work with top executives, how to get out of the weeds of operations and make time for the high impact strategic work that will lead to breakthrough results. If you're serious about multiplying your impact, you do need to elevate your use of time. So I highly recommend that you head over to makingtimeforstrategy.com where you can find out more about the book and download some free chapters. Now, back to the conversation. Yeah, nice. Interesting. So what I'm wondering when I hear those, so they sound great, obviously, but I I couldn't imagine a company would ever say the opposite, right? So yeah, I, I I don't I doubt there's a company somewhere who goes, let's be arrogant without confidence, right? Or let's like not care about our customers, or let's never innovate. So, so so in a sense, what I'm saying, they're kind of health factors on one level. Um, not to diminish their value, but what I'm getting interested about is what have you found. How, why have they been so powerful, given that on one level, they're kind of obvious, if you see what I mean, right? Like, be customer-obsessed, innovate, have integrity. Yeah. Again, do you see what I mean? It, it, it's not like they're kind of some really, really crazy out off there. You've never heard them. You couldn't imagine, you know, really clever values that no one's ever thought of before. They're, 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 they're solid, but they're still for you a real powerhouse. So I'm wondering... 
how do you see that working? What, why the need, you know, why the, why the need to kind of be so explicit about them? How do you see that? Yeah, so first of all, I, I do think that, that it can be said that it, well, certainly with some of those values, at least, um, you, you can build a successful business with diametrically opposed values, right? So uh, um, uh, take confidence without arrogance, for instance. Um, we think arrogance makes the boat go slower. Uh, but I mean, there's plenty of corporately really arrogant companies out there that have done really well. So I, I, I just want to make the point. That is true. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating uh, my point. A bit. Yeah, I know. No, but, you, um, but I just want to make the point that I'm not saying there's a right or wrong culture. I'm saying yes. there's our culture yeah. and, and we like our culture and we think yeah. it makes our yeah. boat go faster. But the difference between like writing down six things and they could have similar things could have been said by other companies. And there's two of ours where like literally, I think the same words are used by the companies. Bias for action is quite a common one. Customer obsession is quite another one. Um, but really it's about activation, right? It's about how do you put yeah. them to work and, yeah. and do you live them? So in the early days, the activation was really easy. I knew what I meant by confidence without arrogance. And there was only 10 or 15 other Matillionaires. And so if I heard them doing something that wasn't living the confidence without arrogance value, then I would just go and correct them. But having the value written down helped me do that, right? It reminded me that I needed to do it because it's, it's always easier in a human way just to like skirt over these things. And it gave me some ammunition to go and do it. Hey, we have this value called confidence without arrogance. And that means we don't do this. So next time, Richard, I'd prefer it if you did it this way. And then, you know, you ignore me a couple more times and I fire you, right? Because you're not living the values. Um, now at scale, we do the same thing, but just with more sophistication. So for instance, our interview questions dive into these topics. And mm. one of the things we're trying to figure out is this person like really talented, but also super arrogant, in which case they're probably not going to fit in with our team dynamic right. or are they yeah. not? Um, uh, then when people turn up at the business, having been hired, we uh, kind of send them to college on this stuff. So at Matillion, we have a thing called the Matillion Onboarding Academy, and it's a week-long immersion into our right. values and specifically what they actually mean. Right. So innovate and demand quality, for instance, uh, those things are at attention, even though it's one value, right? The best way to ensure quality is never to innovate. So. Right. What, what do we mean by innovate and demand quality? And we go through and we explain that and essentially like certify team members. All of our quarterly um, uh, deep dives with our team members, which are like mm. modern day appraisals, are centered in the values. Uh, we look across our whole team and look at them from an expertise point of view, a contribution point of view, but also from their values adherence point of view. Right. Yeah. I talk, talk about them all the time, as do all other execs. But ultimately, the key test is, do we tolerate them not being lived? And the answer yeah. is no, right? No. We coach, and then we rapidly curate, i.e. move people out of the business, if they're not able to live the values. Because the moment you don't live it, like I've just lost all my authenticity talking about yeah. it. So, yeah. And that's often what happens, right? Is that's, that's the thing that often happens is they get the values are written. And then actually there's somebody who's performing well on one level, getting some numbers or whatever, right? Yeah. But the values are not there. And and we, we've had it. that happen on multiple occasions, right? We've had the rock star engineer who's unable to live the values. We've had the salesperson smashing their quotes throughout the park when all the yeah. others aren't, but he or she still has to go. You know, the biggest test for me with this was actually with a senior executive that I'd not too long ago hired. 
and my, my worldview, uh, this is just a world according to Matthew Scullion, but you go through different generations of senior executives in your team. You kind of have your, your first generation kind of founder Corinthian team. Um, and, you know, they're, they're smart, intelligent people with a lot of drive and passion and focus and energy, but they might not have done the jobs before. Then you get a first generation professional team um, uh, who are people that have done the jobs before, but your company hasn't quite gotten big enough or glamorous enough or late stage enough to uh, to get, um, uh, you know, what you're going to need in future. And then later, uh, you know, uh, you need to bring in new executives to take you through that later stage journey and you're more able to attract them because you're bigger or more glamorous or more yes. known. Right? Yeah. So you've got these different like... Um, uh, uh, sorts of uh, um, areas of the executive team. And in one of these particular areas, I brought in a senior executive to run a major organization of Matillion. And I kind of showed him off a bit during a fundraising process because he was like, you know, my new signing for the football yeah, right. Look at this great guy that I've got. But unfortunately, pretty quickly during the fundraising process, albeit for separate reasons, figured out that this person just wasn't going to be able to prosper within our values. And, you know, they'd come from different companies that, that weren't able them. So we had to part company halfway through a fundraising round even though I'd, I'd kind of wheeled yeah. this guy out right, as right. one of the star players. And that did cause awkwardness on the fundraising round. But ultimately, my trade-off was what's more important to me, landing the fundraising round yes. or maintaining integrity around the value. Yeah. And, yeah. and it was the latter. Uh, yeah, that's great. I often say to clients when they're in a bit of this di- dilemma, I often say, you know, you have three choices, right? You've got tolerate, terminate or transform. Yeah. Um, so you know, you either yeah, you're either going to tolerate, which which means you're going to dilute your culture, you're going to erode your culture, but you're not a good option. Terminate is okay, do it quick. But on the other hand, have you actually been really clear about the expectations? Yeah. Have you given them chance, etc. And then transform, yeah, which is the coaching side, as you said, right? Which is okay, they're not quite there. We need to see is this something they can learn, or is it something which is just not something they want to get where they want to go and uh yeah i and 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 i think those options are right but i'd only ever consider using two of them right so it would be uh, i'd either go transform followed by what was your last um yeah what 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 was the last two there was tolerate transform what was the other one mate um uh tolerate terminate transform yeah yeah Yeah. well so i well i I would agree absolutely but it is an option that that people have again one of the i actually like to I actually push back quite often on, on people who, who go, you know what, so-and-so is just not cutting it as a member of our team. I'm always like, well, hang on. Have you set expectations really clearly? And have you explained the stakes to them? Because, yeah, certain times leaders, they're kind of afraid to get into the conflict situation or tense conversations. So they'll say, yeah, it's great, it's great, it's great. And then oh, actually you're fired, <laughs> which I think, you know... And- and that's no good. Yeah. That's no good either. And you've got to have your infrastructure and your and your telemetry in place to spot that phenomenon as well. Yeah, exactly. Staying within, you know, cultural values adherence. Basically, uh, for me, there's only two options. It's either transform, and if that doesn't work, terminate. Yeah. Or depending on the severity of the uh, the gap between their behaviour and the values, it might just be terminate straight away. Yes. But yeah. you've got this four box model, haven't you? You've got low performer, low values adherence. Well, why are we even talking about them? They should be gone. Yeah. 
Uh, you've got high performer, high values adherence. Great. They're your top yeah. performing people, the future of the company. You've yeah. got high performance, low values adherence, and they're the most dangerous of the lot. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's the toxic. Ones, that's yeah. the toxic ones. And then you've got low performance, um, uh, but high cultural fit. And those are the ones that you should put your effort into transforming. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. So it's an interesting conversation. I'm sure we could spend yeah, a lot more on this, but. Um, on the, on the values, but I, I do see that, you know, you've built infrastructure, you've built process, it's in the interviews, it's in the reviews, it's, it's in the onboarding. So you've really done a lot of work, right, to create the systems around the values. We need a lot longer to go through the whole lot, Richard. It's yeah. my, uh, it's my Kool-Aid, my friend. It's, yeah, <laughs> it, it's great. And, and yeah, and I say it, it's, it's great when people actually get, go, you know what, it is really working. Sometimes people see that the value stuff is like a nice to have. And I think you're, you're showing it's a must have. And it comes back, if you don't mind me, uh, sort of uh, just squeezing one more point in around this. You know, you mentioned earlier about this thing of being a, uh, a Manchester based company uh, growing up with the Silicon Valley playbook. And mm. I, I said there were upsides and downsides to that. And there definitely are, right? Upsides, we have fantastic engineering talent in the UK. Um, we don't have as many glamorous software companies, so we uh, stick out more compared to other companies here in the UK. Downsides, you know, the, the smart capital is perhaps more abundant in the US. Some of the specialist roles that you're going to need over time in the US, most markets in the US, so you're going to have to go there. So upsides and downsides. But one thing that sticks in my mind, perhaps, is just the difference to look at, listen to and feel the company, right? The, the Silicon Valley cookie cutter Um uh, which shouldn't be disrespected because it's pretty damn successful, right? But it does rinse out a certain feel of company. Um, you know, you drop out of Stanford, you work at Facebook for a couple of years, you were probably born wearing a quilted Patagonia vest, and it it just rinses out a certain feel of company. And so I think a big advantage for Matillion as an employer brand and mm. a customer brand has been that uh, difference in tonality underpinned by our values and culture that blends all that's good about Silicon Valley, of which there's a lot, but with the, perhaps the uh, pragmatic industrialism of uh, the northern UK and our mm. heritage in the Industrial Revolution, Richard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Well, hey, um, there's a few quick fire questions I'd like to ask you. I always ask these. Yes, these. Um, it's always interesting to see what uh, some of your influences are, right, as a leader. So... What's a favorite quote that you would draw on and, you know, or, or that inspires you as a leader? Hmm. Um, there's probably a little uh, uh, shortlist of them. Um, uh, this next phrase is from uh, a, a great friend of mine and also an independent board member with Matillion. He's been a CEO before and before that he was with Apple and Sun and a great guy called Brian Gentile. One of his favorite focuses is... Um, uh, I wish I'd been less focused, said no CEO ever. Uh, and I, I, I should, as a spoiler, say he's got like five different versions of it. You know, I wish I'd been more X, said no CEO ever. But the the, the one that really helps, I wish I'd been more focused, uh, less focused, said no CEO ever. <laughs> got it. Thank you. Um, what about, is there a favorite app or something on your phone? Just something that you go to. <laughs> outside the usual corporate suite of apps is something that particularly for you you find is energizes you keeps you productive i don't know i really like blinkist um mm. uh, that's good um, app. Uh, and the reason i like it is because 
successful business people or successful people in general, you know, athletes, coaches, business people, politicians, whatever, uh, they almost all have, you know, two, three, four, half a dozen lessons um, that'd be really good for us all to learn. Uh, the trouble is that the best way for uh, uh, them to get those lessons to market and I suppose maybe make a bit of money from it is to write a book. And the publisher says, yeah, you can't really write a four page book, Richard. So what you have to do is like flesh it out with a load of waffle to justify um, uh, getting your actual two or three important lessons out there. So what Blinkist does is reverse engineers that and you can get all the goodness but in 20 minutes, and uh, there is a lot of good stuff to learn. Uh, I think very few things we genuinely need to reinvent in business. And therefore, yeah. if we can stand on the shoulders of giants who've trodden this path before, then that yeah. helps accelerate it. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. I, I've used Blinkist on occasion. I come and go. So um, I go go between the, I love the, the the speed and so forth. On the other hand, sometimes to be transformed by an idea you do have to sit with it for two, X hundred pages and Maybe. hear the yeah, stories yeah. and have them go in. So there's kind of a bit of both, but I think it's great as a way of scanning, seeing what ideas are coming up and what some of these, you know, yeah. Where I'll take you might a more hawkish line than you, Rich. I'm just like, it's 300 pages of waffle. Just give me, give me, give me the core concepts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's, I think, the way I use it, it's a scan, actually. I use it as a scan to kind of go, is there anything here that I really want to dive deep into? And, um, and you know, we have um, uh, frameworks or concepts that we like to use in the business that it's therefore useful if all team members know. Um, mm. And, and a, a big one would be, for instance, um, uh, Patrick Lencioni's uh, model for organizational health and the five dysfunctions of the team at Matillion. Yep. Like in a lot of uh, high growth tech companies, we use that framework and, that, and it has a language and a lexicon that goes yes. with it, right, around yeah. shared goals and trust and the ability <laughs> to conflicts and stuff. Now, as it happens, five dysfunctions is quite a rollicking read anyway, but um, we, we rolled out, we've rolled out Blinkist to the whole team. And so mm-hmm. we can say, look, these are the kind of six books that you need to read if you want to understand how Matillion is taught to each other. And you can get them all as blinks. So nice. you can get that all done on your first day. And, you know, you're off yeah, to Yeah, yeah, nice, nice, very nice. So how about, um, um, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Mm, um, think bigger, quicker. Um, uh, and... Um, you know, it's so hard to be uh, uh, kind of rearward looking like that, isn't it? If I just known this, 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 and this were going to happen, then I could have built an even bigger company. Well, yeah. Um, but um, I think I probably wished, um, I, I think in retrospect, uh, perhaps I could have, um, uh, you know, I did a startup. I was a co-founder of that startup. I wasn't the CEO, um, but I, I was the CTO and co-founder. Um and then I went off and got a proper job for a bit. And then I set Matillion up. Uh, thinking about it, I maybe could have acted earlier. Um, and, uh, you know, the, there was a law of diminishing returns maybe kicking in. And the thing that held me back is actually where the lesson is. I think a lot of proto-entrepreneurs that would really like to start a business, uh, but that haven't yet pulled the trigger, mm. they worry too much about the inspiration because they're under indexing on the perspiration, right? Mm. If you can generally speaking land yourself uh, um, in a, a vibrant market with an idea that, you know, maybe we'll get you somewhere near to product market fit. Then it's the handle turning and the energy that turns it into a great business. Um, 
Uh, as my business proves, right, we do almost nothing today that we did on the first day, right. even though we're in the same overall wheelhouse. But people, I think, over-index too much on the perfect idea. Um, uh, 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 and that idea mm. will be wrong. You know, it's like battle plans, isn't it? They're great until the first sound of action, and then you sort of change them all all the time. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd maybe want to get started a little bit quicker, recognizing that it's more perspiration than it is inspiration. And I'd think bigger, quicker, as we were talking about earlier in the conversation. Yeah, no, I love that. I love the idea of not over-indexing on the perfect idea and uh, getting into motion. Yeah, 100%. So no matter how much we've achieved, there's always a next level to get to. So two of my favorite questions are, you know, where does Matillion go from here as a business over the next couple of years? Well, let's start with that one. What, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the future for you as a business? Yeah, so... Um... Compared to where we were um, in January 2011 or, or even in October 2015, Matillion seems to me like a huge business. But of course, um, we're still um, just getting started, really. And I think this tectonic kind of uh, change in the way that businesses use technology, this digitization of business using software at the macro level, and specifically the use of data in the micro level, you know, it's just getting started. We're maybe just starting to see adoption from the early majority. That gives us the chance, opportunity, and we think visceral need to build a consequential company in this market. And, and really, that's always what's next for us. Uh, you know, um, our, our, our mission um, is for the global 8,000 largest companies in the world, you know, those companies with a billion dollars of revenue and more, of which today we already have many hundreds, um, to be the pre preeminent choice for making their data useful in that segment, as well as for thousands more smart, ambitious, fast-growing businesses that want to use the same technology. Everything else, uh, you know, like our next major economic milestone will be $100 million in recurring revenue, which we should hit sometime in the next few months mm -hmm. um and um uh, uh but but those are just byproducts of delivering on that um uh on that vision and mission make the world's right. data useful by uh delivering a platform that's used by the global eight thousand companies in the world to you know uh, uh extract load transform and synchronize their data everything else is byproducts it's the same with the the unicorn rounds and the, uh, the IPOs and the awards, those are just things that happen if you deliver on your mission. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, I love the focus right on the end, right? What are you actually, what's you actually trying to do uh, in all of this? And then that, the 8,000 is so specific, right? It, 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 it's, it's clear. Yeah, it's my friend Brian's advice, right, Richard? I wish I'd been less focused said no CEO ever. You know? Yeah, absolutely. What do you need to do differently if you're going to multiply your own impact? Because it's, things are changing fast. How do you need to re-engineer your own success formula? Yeah, so, I mean, if we're talking in general across the suite, going from two people in 2011 to where we are today to into the future, you know, I think there's a couple of key concepts. Um, this, by the way, is why confidence without arrogance is our first value, because you need to be vulnerable enough to realize this while being confident enough to want to build that consequential company. But it's about accelerated learning. Um, and I hope that's not cliche to say, but it really is. 
um occasionally people say oh how uh, um you know matthew like how do you end up being a ceo and it's like you know uh, first of all i'm not sure it's an end state with a finished product but secondly you start off and you think you won but you're not and then you learn at an accelerated rate along the way with with urgency and i am a completely different business person from what I was at the beginning of the Matillion journey. Right. And I'd say I'm probably 50, 60% different to what I was a year ago and will be in a year's time. How do you equip yourself with that knowledge? Well, you've got to dedicate some of your time to learning. I have worked hard to build a network of other business people, you know, maybe domain specialists, chief product officers, chief customer sucks, chief customer officers, chief revenue officers, but also other CEOs that are ahead in the journey or finished the journey that we're on. And, and again, uh, like um, doing business with integrity, one of our values, uh, being confident without arrogant, another of our values, these things are help help people like you, right? And therefore they're happy to help. And so, and I'll phone up and ask their advice on things. Um, And and then another area that took me a while to learn is you've also got to keep yourself healthy while you do that. I mean, um, there's probably quite a few jobs in the world where people would say this, but it's definitely been said many times before, and I empathize it, that CEO of a high growth startup is one of perhaps even the hardest job in the world, right? There's less founder CEOs of unicorns than there are that people have been to space. Um, uh, It's a very, very demanding job. I'm 10 years into Matillion's journey now, so it's been demanding for a long time. And so you have to also keep yourself healthy. Um, And and that means, um, you know, focusing on work, being there for your family, but also making time for yourself mentally, spiritually, and, uh, you know, even a bit physically, you know, like keeping yourself in shape. Yeah, really wise words. Well, hey, thank you. So Matthew, it's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think we've covered some really important things. You know, we've gone into culture. We've gone into this idea of really thinking from the start about the scale of what, what could be possible. You know, we've looked about this idea of accelerated learning. Um, so it's been a really fascinating conversation. And so thank you for taking the time. If people want to find out more about Matidian or, or get in touch with you, you know, what's the best way of doing that? Uh, to get in touch with me, you'll find me on LinkedIn, Matthew Scullion, and the company is Matillion, M-A-T-I-L-L-I-O-N. Uh, same on Twitter. And for the company, of course, which is much more exciting, Richard, uh, we're at matillion.com, where you can launch a free trial of our software, uh, Matillion ETL, our, our kind of full feature platform, Matillion Data Loader, our super easy to use data movement platform and also the newly launched Matillion CDC and you can get free trials of all those products on Matillion.com. That's perfect well hey Matthew it's been great to speak and uh, look forward to looking at uh, watching the uh, the uh, rocket ship continue to uh, to uh, to um, orbit what's not the right word to enter new galaxies Ascend. right Ascend. Yeah, exactly <laughs> sounds like you're yeah. on an incredible ride so thank you for well, taking the time. We're working harder to keep it going up and to the right. But Richard, thank you very much. It's been great fun. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Now let's talk about you. When you're in top leadership, when you're in the biggest role of your career, who supports you at a deep level as you lead others? Who helps you multiply your impact and get to the next level? If you're ready to learn more about our content, our coaching and our community, then visit us at xquadrant.com.